Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. This is season three, Back to the Killing Fields. This season, we are revisiting the Texas Killing Fields. In the following episodes, we will cover a broader area. This is in an effort to connect some of the cases covered in season one. We plan to bring to you some of the known serial killers in this broader area that may have murdered some of the women in the Texas Killing Fields. We will also cover some of the victims that we did not cover in season one. Season three, episode one, Henry Lee Lucas. When telling the story of the Texas Killing Fields, you never really get a feeling that the story is ended. No, not for us at least. No. And, you know, when we started season one of the Texas Killing Fields, we I had an outline of about 15 names on it, right? Right. And I remember we put it up on the wall. We had highlighters. Yes. And then I kept saying, there's another one? There's another one? Like, it was almost unbelievable, you know? And, and we believed, you know, that these names encompassed a bulk of what took place at that time. Right. You know, or in the area. And as we started our research, you know, we would come up with more victims and we would decide if we should add them to our case or not. And some of the reasons for not covering a case was that maybe there wasn't enough uh, information that we could find at the time to add them or their case was already solved, you know. um, And I think when we talk about their case being already solved, one of the things when we first started into the Texas killing fields was that, you know, we had gotten on and done some research and it said, only one case in the Texas killing fields was ever solved. But what you found out about that is that's not really true. It's not a true representation of what happened. Some names got added to that list, added to those tasks force along the way. And then as their cases were solved, they were taken off, but they were never counted as like solved, I guess, in, in the realm. They were just kind of taken off the task force list or taken off those lists. And so you don't hear about them. Right. You know, and you know, even though we feel that all the cases are important and the decision not to include them in our podcast has always been a very difficult one. Oh, yeah. You know, um, you know, also, after we wrapped up season one, we have been contacted by a number of people who would present us with a case or ask us if we would cover it or ask us why we have not covered certain individuals. Um, Others have brought us information on closed cases and asked if it would be possible that the perpetrators, you know, had killed some of the other victims that we presented and some of the names mentioned, you know, from some of our listeners were Anthony Allen Shore, Henry Lee Lucas, and we think it's very possible, you know, that there were serial killers and more than one serial killer out here you know during this time so absolutely i think you know as as we delved into this and so many other names kind of came up you know as we went along you know when you talk about the tourniquet killer who was um anthony allen shore so that was so very close and when you look at that and you think okay well he confessed so that must be it he didn't confess until after DNA tied him to crimes and then he confessed to those crimes. So I think when we started doing this, we had kind of this square box and we tried to make everything fit. And now it just seems like we need to broaden that a little bit and take a look at some of these other things that were going on. And that's where we start today's episode, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
one of those things that comes up over and over again when you're doing the research on the Texas killing fields is Henry Lee Lucas and Henry Lee Lucas confessing to crimes that might have been part of the Texas killing fields. So we were reluctant. I mean, I think both of us at first were very reluctant. Um, I don't believe a lot of what Henry Lee Lucas has to say. Well, and we know a lot of what he has said has been proven false too. Right. So, I mean, you know, we know that it's been proven false. It's hard to believe him. Right. You and know? when we're talking about putting a several episodes out on Henry Lee Lucas, one of the pauses that we have is we don't want to continue to try to put out false information. So with Henry Lee Lucas confessing to so many crimes and putting out that false information there, we didn't want to present him and have that false information continue. Mm -hmm. So as we talk about him, we know that probably a lot of what he says is not true, but you do, sometimes you have to ask yourself though, is there some of it that is right? You know, so, is it possible that, mm -hmm. I mean, it's the chance that you take, I guess. Right. Is any of it true? Mm -hmm. Is none of it true? Is any of it true? Is some of it true? I don't know. You know, I just, I really don't know. It's like, you know, when you, people talk about, you know, like, oh, I know somebody that's always speaking half truths. Yeah. It's almost like that, right? You know? So today we're going to start out, give you a little background information on Henry Lee Lucas. And then the next couple of episodes that we will do, we'll cover... Henry Lee Lucas, some of his crimes, some of them that were proven um, false through great DNA and detective work, and then also a couple of them that are on the Texas killing fields that at this point in time, it's questionable. So we're going to kind of leave it up to other people. But Henry Lee Lucas was born to Anderson and Viola Lucas. Viola had seven children. Viola was said to be half Native American. So Henry spent most of his life in Blackbird, Virginia. The family was poor and lived in a log shack with a dirt floor. Lucas's father, Anderson, was crippled, losing both of his legs in a railroad accident and unable to work. He quit, Lucas quit school after the fifth grade and his mother, Viola, was charged charged with failing to make him attend in 1952. So it's basically truancy mm -hmm. for nowadays. Um, you don't let your kid go, you don't make your kid go to school and you get charged for truancy. A little while after that, he lost an eye from a BB gun accident. So although what is said by his relatives is the BB gun accident, he does say other things later in life, but I'm pretty sure that probably his relatives have the story correct. Um, the family lived in squalor. His father was drunk. His mother um, was also not much better. She made whiskey and chopped wood for money. He began getting in trouble with the law when he was about 13 years old for stealing radios. And he was sentenced um, to prison in 1952 for burglary in Virginia. In 1956, he was picked up by the police in Michigan who found that he had escaped from prison in Virginia while working on a prison road gang. He was paroled to Michigan in 1959 to his half-sister, Opal Jennings. On January 15th, 1960, 
Lucas was home living with his sister and his 74 year old mother, Viola was visiting. He and his mother began to fight over her insisting that he get a job. He got angry, picked up a pocket knife and stabbed her in the neck, killing her. That's terrible. It is. It really is. But sadly, Viola was not exactly the same. I'm not saying she deserved to be stabbed in the neck, but she was an incredibly abusive woman to Lucas. And um, so I think that he, he didn't have a great relationship with her. He didn't ever have any skills on how to deal with her. And he reacted. Yeah. Sometimes you, it goes back to that whole nature versus nurture, right? right. You know, so if she had maybe been toward, different toward him, you never know. Right. And I mean, in no way, shape or form, form as I am saying that she deserved to be murdered, but she did dress him up as a girl and send him to school, made fun of him. Um, there, there are definitely parts where there are some allegations that she probably had possibly sexually abused her son. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it was not a happy childhood where, you know, then one day he just decides to stab his mother. I mean, their relationship was horrible and she was not a great woman. Um, the town officer, uh, Tomasco said that Lucas was always in trouble in the small town. He was frequently in bars, fighting and brawls. Police often stated they were called to the home because Lucas and his mother would be fighting and many of the neighbors were also scared of him. So, uh, he didn't exactly have a good reputation in that town either. After stabbing his mother, um, he fled to Ohio but was found and brought back, brought up on second degree murder charges. He was given a sentence of 20 to 30 years. He spent part of the sentence in Michigan in a mental institution, and he was locked up till 1970 when he was released due to overcrowding in the prisons. He was arrested again in 1971 when a man identified as the man who attempted to abduct a young girl walking on a dirt road in Temeski. Um, so this is the one thing that always like when everybody says Lucas lies about everything that he does and that the only people that he ever killed were his mother. And then we'll get into some of the other victims that are obviously ones that he did kill. You have to go back to this incident where he is attempting to kidnap a young girl walking home mm -hmm. and think that it does and for law enforcement had to make some sense that he would be the type of person who would adopt kidnap rape torture and murder people right right um he was sent back to prison he was paroled again in the in 1975 um police basically at that point in time when he's paroled, there's a lot that goes on. I mean, it's not like law enforcement wanted to let him out. There was some hesitant there where they they said that somebody needs to keep an eye on him. Yeah, but, I mean, you're going to let him out due to overcrowding. I mean, that's just ridiculous, too. Right. And, and, and we know what happens. I mean, it still happens. Yeah. So, um, but... So he basically moves uh, to Port Deposit, Maryland to live with his sister. He um, spent a few days with his sister and then he moved in with his 
niece and her husband. While he's there, he has a few odd jobs. Um, things seem to be going pretty well. He's um, working. He would um, work on cars and um, sometimes part them out, sometimes getting them uh, running. So during this period of time, he does have access to vehicles. They may not all be registered in his name, which is the difficulty when people have tried to research whether or not he had access to a vehicle. Not all the vehicles that he worked on did he register in his name. Sometimes he worked on them, parted them out, and then they just, nobody knew that he had them. So on December 5th, 1975, he married a woman named Betty Crawford. Betty was actually his nephew's widow. Oh, wow. And so he marries Betty and he and Betty move in together. Betty has two daughters from um, Lucas's nephew living with her. And during that time they lived together, he was molesting her daughters. Betty didn't know at the time that that was going on, but um, when he left, she did find out that that was going on. So in during the time that Betty and Lucas are together, the few short years that they're together, Betty said he really didn't leave for like overnight trips or extended trips or anything like that. He worked, came home. She pretty much always knew where he was. Um, she did say that he did take two overnight trips, um, with other family members, those trips, he was accounted for with those family members. So as far as they know, he couldn't have been out doing anything during that time. This is important because when Lucas gets into confessing to different crimes and stuff, that some of those confessions that he makes are during times that he's living with Betty. Right. And so this is Betty, this is their way of saying is it possible because according to his wife he was home uh in 1977 lucas and betty actually go to texas for a couple of days to visit some family then they come back and their relationship quickly falls apart um lucas said he was working in a mushroom farm betty said he wasn't bringing home any money so she didn't believe that he was working in a mushroom farm. And then shortly after that, he left one day and never came home. So Betty and Lucas did not divorce, but they did separate at that time. And that's when she finds out that he was molesting her children. So after he leaves Betty, he moves in with, again, some family members, but he also spends some time traveling around. So he visits his half-brother in Virginia. He goes to Shreveport, Louisiana. He visits some family. He does go to Knoxville, Tennessee, and also Baltimore, Maryland. During this time, he is either getting rides from family member or hitchhiking. In January of 1978, he met another woman, Rhonda Knuckles, in West Virginia. He told Rhonda that he was divorced, uh, but... Rhonda later found out that he wasn't. He also told her other lies, like that he had a scar on his midsection and it was from a bar fight over a woman. I forget exactly what that's from, but it wasn't exactly from a bar fight. I think it was from um, an appendicitis or something. And then Knuckles states that the entire months of their relationship, 
Lucas was unable to get erection, an erection. And due to this, she believes he could never rape anyone. Oh, wow. So. Well, that's. <laughs> he may, not true. Yeah. I mean, he, he may not get off on her, but he might get off on rape. So. Well, and I actually think sometimes that's, you know, when you kind of hear this, you think to yourself, okay, it makes him look a little more guilty, you know, because maybe he had to have a violent element. And so, you know, I just, I don't know, but I don't think that that's evidence of anything. No, no. He left Rhonda in March of 1978 and returned to Maryland. In April of 197, April 7th of 1978, he actually had a tooth removed. And that date's important um, just because it, it ties him to a certain area in April. And, uh, and later he confesses to a crime around that same time period, which that's how um, later some of his evidence, some of his confessions are proven false. But um, in February of 1979, he moves in with a family member. She accuses him of molesting her granddaughter. And oh so, God. yeah, he, the one thing that um, you find as a revolving pattern about him is that he did have any kind of, um, I don't know if you say, what do you say about that? Do you, you know, he was attracted to young girls. He was grooming and molesting young girls. That was, that was something that was going on throughout the time that he's out. Right. And, and I think to a greater extent than even is documented. Um, these are just family members who have come forward or friends who have come forward and said they do know that that did happen. Um, at this point, because he's being accused of, of molesting the granddaughter, he actually asks uh, this woman, do you want me to leave? And she says, I don't want you to leave unless you're guilty. And he says, well, no, I'm not guilty. But then the very next morning, he actually steals the family's pickup truck and takes off. The truck is abandoned in Florida. And then um, he makes his way to Jacksonville, Florida by hitchhiking. And he arrives in Jacksonville, Florida on February 11th, 1979. Sorry about that. So when he's in Jacksonville, this is actually where he meets Otis Tool. And Otis Tool, if it becomes a person that he confesses to crimes that he and Otis did together. So Otis Tool, and if you're not familiar with Otis Tool, we're definitely going to cover a lot more of him in a future episode. But Otis Tool is a gentleman that DNA eventually linked to killing Adam Walsh's son. And Adam Walsh becomes very famous with the um, show America's Most Wanted. So, um, and... So, but we'll cover more on him for right now. We're just covering a little bit of background information of how these two meet. So Otis Tool lived with his mother, Sarah, and her husband, Robert. Plus, Otis had a wife, Novel. Novel and Otis had married uh, in 1977. Also living in the house were Frank Powell and Frida Powell. Frida went by the name Becky. 
Frank was 10 and Becky was 11. Frank and Becky lived with their grandmother because their mother was not able to take care of them. Sadly, in 1981, she actually did commit suicide. It seemed that it was not unusual for Otis to bring someone home with him. He, uh, he would enjoy a relationship with men, but also there was another house guest a woman named Sarah who Otis would force to have sex with these men that he had brought home so that he could watch. Wow. Um, and Otis was actually also known to force Becky to take part in this too. So before Lucas comes on to the scene with Otis, Becky was already being sexually abused by her uncle. Um, and then when Lucas moves in with Otis, his wife actually moves out and moves next door. Otis managed to get Lucas a job at the same place that Otis was working a place called color coat. Um, Otis had worked there for about seven to eight years. Lucas worked there for a month and then hooked up with a woman named shaky Barbara. Um, Barbara and he took a trip to West Virginia where he was assaulted by someone that Lucas owed money to. She ended up spending several days up there um, while he was in the hospital and then she returned to Florida. Lucas also later does return to Florida to meet back up with Otis and then Lucas and Otis both continue working at the color coat. Color coat and they're working there together is kind of important because when the attorney general of Texas starts to get involved in looking at whether or not Lucas's and Otis's confessions were actually true, one of the ways that he tracks down some of that is by the check stubs from color coat, not only the checks and them getting paid, but on the days that they're cashing them at a company store. Um, so it's one of the, ways that they really do start to narrow down where Otis and Lucas were. Otis's mother um, had bought a house in 1980 and by this time Lucas was not working for color code. He had had a falling out. Uh, he tended not to get along with his bosses sometimes so he was easily That's fired. Shocking. I know. <laughs> So by this time he's doing what he been known to do before, which was basically sell scrap metal and, um, and to, uh, to actually, uh, scrap out cars. And so that's kind of what he's doing at that point in time again. And then, um, the, the attorney general's office, just to go back to that, they actually did manage to find some of those scrap metal uh, sellings receipts too. So that's another way that they tracked down, you know, where he was. He's also receiving food stamps in uh, Florida during that time. So the scrapyard receipts and the food stamps have him in Florida until May of 1981. In May of 1981, Sarah dies. And at that point in time, Lucas and Otis load up in this green Oldsmobile that Lucas had. And Lucas has this green Oldsmobile that he's actually cut the roof off of the top of it. 
so that he could load scrap metal into the green automobile and it could kind of stick out the top of it. And, um, and so this is the Oldsmobile that they actually decide that they're going to load up and go to California. And they take Becky and Frank with them, hmm. the two children. Mm -hmm. And so they head out at that point in time. And on our next episodes, we'll cover a little bit more of their trip to California and, um, and then a little bit more of what happens next, but that gives you kind of a bit of a background of Lucas and kind of his family life and this nomadic life that he has back and forth. So join us for our next episode.